Chester is an academic, a musician, and a leading UK trans activist. Lester is an educator and consultant to organisations such as Channel 4, the BBC, the Huffington Post, and to universities and unions across the country. They have written for The Independent, The New Internationalist, and The New Statesman, and performed at the Barbican, the Tate Modern, and the Southbank Centre. Lester co-founded the first ever national UK group for young LGBT people. Please welcome to the stage CN Lester. Hi, thank you so much for having me here tonight. Um, so my first book, uh, Horrible Plug, came out a week and a half ago, and it's a collection of essays about being trans, because the really funny thing about being trans is the question is always either incredibly theoretical or incredibly personal. So it's either, what is this? You know, like, can you explain it to me in 10 philosophical steps? Or can you tell me what's in your pants? And we wanted to do something that was kind of neither of those things, but instead would talk about trans people in the media, trans people in history, trans people in romantic relationships and family relationships, and not be academic and not be a memoir, but kind of mix the best parts of both. And so I've been on tour for the last two weeks, and one of the questions that I get asked constantly is usefully, actually, the chapter starting, uh, my fourth chapter, which is, are you sure, or the flip side, couldn't you just not be trans? So this is my answer to that. It's amazing the number of people who'll try to argue another person out of being trans as if no one has ever tried that before. Sometimes those doing the arguing are motivated by concern, and sometimes by annoyance, confusion, or outrage. Their arguments are presented as rational undoings of our supposedly broken reasoning, as though being trans is a riddle which can be solved with the correct interpretation. Perhaps even stranger are those people who present no argument at all, but who wonder gently if we've considered just not maybe just avoiding it until it goes away. It often comes down to the split between words and deeds. Maybe we could be trans in private, but not do it in the street and frighten the horses. Underlying all of this is the idea that being transgender is something unfortunate, impossible to understand, and better to ignore. Something you could probably change if you put your mind to it, or grow out of if you just try harder that can turn so easily from why do you have to do this to why are you like this in the first place? I don't have a quick and easy answer to that, no more than I have a quick and easy answer as to why I'm a pianist or how I experience the color blue. But I feel the temptation to find a simple answer when other people are so quick to provide their own reasons as to why I'm trans and within those reasons, blueprints as to how I could change. The most common explanations given to me as to why I'm trans, there are eight. Some of them are classic, some of them are a little bit more recent. Number one is that I'm a freak of nature. Number two, I am desperate for attention. Number three, that I'm mentally ill. Number four, that I hate nature and want to go against it as some kind of, I don't know, industrialized rebellion. Five, I hate women. Six, linked, I have issues with my mother. Seven, linked to both of those that I'm scared to be a butch lesbian. And eight is a brand new one that it's now cool to be trans. The resolutions to all of these explanations are alarmingly simple and multifunctional. Stop being mad, stop being difficult, stop pretending, stop existing. 
it is the question of surety that typifies this interrogative position most clearly to me. Are you sure is a constant refrain, the response given to my name, my passport, my pronouns, my title, my body, my way of understanding myself. Being trans is not like other elements of life, where necessary elements of doubt are considered natural, where there would otherwise be investigation, vacillation, self-doubt and fumbling, fear necessarily bound up with desire, belief with trepidation. There can only be flat, unquestioning stasis. To be trans, you have to be surer than you've ever been, because being trans is what you are when you've exhausted every other option. And still, people would like to be there a chance of something different, so they say to us, are you sure? To be accepted for transition-related medical care, for instance, in the UK, you have to pass the real-life test. It has capital letters. The real-life test means living, their words, in your acquired gender, for a period of time, sometimes up to two years, without treatment, to make sure that you're really sure. Asking someone to go without the hormones they're desperate for, while they're also navigating the world in a body more likely to be read as non-normative, might seem cruel, but presumably this is the point. If you don't want it enough to run the gauntlet to prove your worth, then you don't want it enough to be real. If you don't want to face that violence, that ridicule, the loss of employment, the loss of a home, then you can't possibly want it enough to be sure. Most trans people have our moments of surety, moments that vibrate with the rightness of knowledge through every part of us in sympathetic resonance. But we also know that those moments are to be feared and to be denied if possible. Those moments happen to other people because trans people are not normal and not like us, and how can we be harboring that feared other inside ourselves? We torment ourselves. How can I know for sure? What if I'm wrong? What would happen to me if I'm wrong? We hold off our transitions, and it is till it is transition or die. We are encouraged to do so, and some of us die, and many of us who live have tried to. We could do this differently if those who were so scared of us could learn to pick away at that fear. Transition can be another word for learning or the inevitable transformation that comes as a foundation of living. It can exist in multiples, it can flow in many directions. With the confidence and comfort of more than a decade of living openly as myself, of being loved as myself no matter the hostility of the majority, surety matters far less than it used to. I am not sure that I will be the same for the rest of my life. I'm not sure that my needs will remain static or that I will not seek further expression for an expanded and maturing self. I know myself, but not all I could become. What I am sure of is there was no line I crossed that turned me from someone who could have been diverted into someone who is unquestionably trans. I don't claim that every iteration, every choice, every turning point would have proved the same. But I do believe that the only purpose served by the question of surety is to bolster the illusion that those who ask it have created, that they themselves are sure and safe and not in the slightest like us, the ones they are judging. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, C.N. Lester. Our next writer, Danny Scheinman, was born in Manchester and has le lectured in storytelling techniques at London Metropolitan University 
as well as writing and starring in films. Danny recently co-directed his first feature film with his brother David, After Louise. His debut novel, Random Acts of Heroic Love, was a bestseller in the UK and published in 21 languages. Danny's second book, The Half-Life of Joshua Jones, is out now. Please welcome to the stage Danny Scheinman. Hello, Hootenanny people. How are you doing? Do you need to stretch those ears? Just, yeah, give them a little bit of ear yoga. You've got to listen to so many people. So, um, this is the half-life of Joshua Jones, and I've been racking my brains all day as to which extract to read you. Um, and uh, I think I've plumped on one now, and that's why there's so many bits of paper in here. Should we go with this one? Should we go with the romantic? Should we go with the heavy and hard? Anyway, you'll find out. Um, so, the half-life of Joshua Jones, uh, in, this, in this book, Joshua Jones uh, loses his job, quickly followed by uh, his wife, who leaves him for another woman, and then he uh, loses his home. And he meets this stranger in a cafe, and they have this extraordinary conversation, the kind you can only really have with a stranger. And then she kisses him, she gets up, she walks out of the cafe, and she throws herself in front of a bus, in front of his eyes, and she falls into a coma. And now, suddenly, he wants to know who she is. And the more he digs, the more he finds out about her, the stranger the world gets. As part of the story, uh, he, uh, his father died in a caving accident when he was very young. And uh, in this extract I'm going to read, he finds himself back, uh, or for the first time, in the cave, trying to find out, trying to find the soul of his father. And to do this, actually, I actually went down to Wales to Ogof Finanvi, which is a huge cave network in, in South Wales. And uh, it was terrifying. I went down, I got wet, I had to wear this whole kind of wetsuit thing. I was up to my uh, waist in water, um, going through tiny holes and all, the, you know, this was brilliant. It got me out of the British Library. It was brilliant. Because it's so boring in there. There's so much repressed sort of uh, in that library. Anyway, I had to get out. I went down the hole, I went down the cave, and I survived it, and it was an extraordinary, terrifying uh, feeling. So in this little uh, section here, um, he's already gone down. He's been shown around. He's been shown the place where his father drowned. Uh, it's quite common in caving uh, that if, the, if it's raining above you, the water can seep through the ground, and suddenly in these little narrow phreatic tubes, the water can, can catch up and drown you very easily. So he's down there, he's found the place, he's gone back on his own, and uh, he's already been shown, uh, and I was shown actually when I went down there, a skeleton, a place where uh, they found the skeleton of, a, uh, of someone they called Smith, that was his nickname, Smith. That becomes relevant as I, as I read. Um, and Smith made it into the novel. Um, okay, so. I slumped down and listened to the sound of water plinking on the stone. The cave was alive with drips and plops that echoed off the walls. A rainbow of emotion breached my heart. My father was everywhere. I may have been in a giant underground network of passages and tunnels, but there was nowhere to hide. I had reached the epicenter of everything. Ripples danced over the water. Their shadows, 
undulated on the walls high above me. I felt like a fish breathing under the ocean. There was a tingling charge in the air. A battalion of goosebumps stood to attention on my damp arms and legs. As my listening sharpened in the silence, I was convinced I could hear voices in a distant cavern. Was someone else in the cave? Had they sent a search party? Or was it Smith and my dad sharing a joke? I stared into the sump. I wondered how much of my father was down there, ground down bones, teeth, skull. A floodgate unlocked inside me and I began to cry. I cried for the 25 years of not crying. The distant voices babbled away. My lamp flickered again and then died. I shook it and bashed it, but this time the lamp would not be beaten into submission. I don't think I had ever experienced a blackness so black. It made no difference if my eyes were open or closed. My tears turned to blind fear. No one knew I was in the cave. I stood up and stretched out my arms and felt for the wall. I took a few steps. There was no way I'd be able to find my way out of, there, out of here. Hello, I shouted. No response. Is anyone there? Nothing. Help! I remembered that Rabbi Feldenberg, that's a childhood teacher, um, when he was a kid, had once told us the story of a man lost in the forest. For, for days and weeks, he wandered in a panic, desperately trying to find his way out. Eventually, he came across an old woman sitting on a tree stump. The man was overjoyed to see her. Please help me get out of this forest. I've been lost for 30 days. The old woman began to laugh and laugh. Well, what's so funny, said the man. 30 days, chuckled the woman. <laughs> I've been lost for 30 years. The man's mouth dropped open. So you can't show me the path out of here? No, she replied. But I can show you a thousand paths that lead nowhere. The rabbi said it was the curse of those without faith to constantly seek meaning but never find it. I have never known what to believe. I have never known what I stood for. How long can a man strive before he is eaten by his own pointlessness? I sat down again. My heart was thrashing frantically against my ribs like a bird trapped inside a house. I tried to keep calm. Best to wait, I told myself. Someone was bound to come down the next day. Some expedition, a university club, a couple of members, someone. It was a busy cave. I didn't care if I got arrested. I just wanted to get out, out of there. Jerry said the best thing to do if you, get, you got into trouble was to find dry ground and wait for rescue. They had a system whereby if you were not back by the time you said you'd be back, they would wait an, one hour and then send out a search party. Everyone who went into the cave wrote their name onto a notice board in the club with their planned return time. I hadn't put my name on the list. No one had any reason to look for me. Maybe someone would notice that their wetsuit was missing and put two and two together. But how long would that take? And oh my goodness, I was so far underground. Parts of the cave were 200 million years old. 
Jerry said it was formed when the land, which is now Great Britain, was on the equator. And Wales was connected to the Appalachian Mountains, now the backbone of New York State. The bedding rock I was sitting on was once part of the desert. The cave had time, all the time in the world. It was the keeper of time. I was a millionth of a blink, a fossil waiting to happen, a secret that would never be told. My insignificance could not be more profound. I was cold, so very cold. I lay back and waited. Time lost all sense. After a while, I could not tell if I'd been waiting 10 minutes or several hours. I closed my eyes, though it made no difference. Hello, Dad. I'm here. Stare long enough at a wall and the ghosts will crawl out. So now there were two of us waiting, Dad and me, three with Smith, four if you included the flame-haired troll in my bag, which was a gift from his father. What were we waiting for? To be found? To find ourselves, perhaps? I had reached that point of singularity, the very soul of everything, the ultimate energy source from which there could be no return. This was the very lowest place I could be. On the other side, through some wormhole I had yet to discover, a new universe beckoned. Maybe Smith and my dad already knew something about this other place. If ever I were to survive this ordeal, nothing would ever be the same again. Dad, I spoke out loud, help me, get me out of here. I waited for a reply, but there was only the constant drip, drip of water and the distant burbling echo of the streamway. Thank you. You can, um, you can buy this on, and, and my first novel as well on the, on the bookshop in the, in the corner. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Danny. Our next writer, Paul Bassett Davies, first novel, Utter Folly, topped the Amazon humorous fiction chart in 2012. His new novel, Dead Writers in Rehab, is now published by Unbound. His story, The Spots, appears in six scary stories selected and introduced by Stephen King. Paul has written and directed for TV, radio, film and stage. He founded the multimedia company Crystal Theatre and his one-man shows have won awards. He's also been a cab driver, a DJ in a strip club, and the vocalist in a punk band. Please welcome Paul Bassett Davies. Hello. Hello, lovely to be here. Um, thank you for having me. And thank you very much to Zelda and her team for putting this lovely event on. Thank you. Um, right. Is this all, is this, I've got to do a bit of this. Um, I'm just going to do a bit of shameless plugging now. And that is, oh, never mind. It's all right. <laughs> right, I've got a, thank you, perfect. That's better. Right, I've got a new book out. It's called Dead Writers in Rehab. There are copies over there. Um, look, they're being held up at this very moment. And um, it's an amazing bargain that I'm offering you because the soft cover version, which is normally £9.99, is 8 
pound only. And I will sign it. Eight pound only, ladies and gentlemen. And the hardback, which is normally 20 pounds, is 15 pound only, ladies and gentlemen. 15 pound, and I will sign them. It's funny money today, ladies and gentlemen. I must be mad. I'm a fool to myself, but I love you so much. Right, bargains are go-go. Okay, Dead Writers in Rehab is about um, a boy wizard called Harry. No, um, <laughs> no it's, uh, I wish it were. No, it's, uh, it's nearly as good. Um, it's about uh, someone called a literary reprobate called Foster James, although that's not his real name. His real name is James Foster. He just called himself Foster James because he thought it sounded better for a writer, who wakes up in what he assumes is yet another rehab centre where he thinks he's been consigned by his growing um, collection of ex-wives and ex-agents and ex-publishers. And he begins to discover that it's not an ordinary rehab centre, uh, particularly when he gets punched in the face by Ernest Hemingway. Um, that's what begins to give him a clue. I'm going to read two short sections. The first one is a series of reports just after it's been admitted by the two doctors who end up to be um, quite significant figures in this story, Dr. Hatchdor and Dr. Bassett. And they are, the first um, extract is these, this little exchange between the two of them. There's an odd relationship between them. Okay. From the desk of Dr. Hatchdor, re patient FJ, admission note 1B. The patient FJ has emerged from the primary stage of detoxification during which he remained asleep for most of the time, with sporadic episodes of wakefulness when he exhibited signs of confusion, melancholia, hysteria, disorientation, incoherence, anxiety, fatigue, mania, depression, and incontinence. He appeared unwilling to prolong these episodes and relapsed into unconsciousness. This may suggest a tendency to regression and womb fixation. Even at this early stage, it is clear that he uses avoidance as a denial tactic. He appears docile. We may assume that he remains ignorant of his status and whereabouts. He has not yet opened the window in his room or the curtains and may be unaware that the room has a window or curtains or that he is in a room. As at the last observation, he was found to be lying underneath his bed. This may also explain his delusion that he has lost his sight, which is expressed during intermittent periods of verbalization. Observation has been constant, with no intervention. The standard precautions will be taken when he emerges from his room, but I am inclined to allow the patient to undergo his own orientation and to become cognizant of his circumstances without undue interference. If he exhibits any signs of trauma or aggression at any stage of the process, I will zonk him. From the desk of Dr. Bassett, memo to Dr. Hatchdor. Wallace, thank you for your patient report, FJ1B. May I make a brief point? Once again, I detect a tendency to over-diagnose. The fact that the patient showed some reluctance to wake up and exhibited signs of confusion, anxiety, etc., when he did, hardly justifies the inference that he wants to regress to the womb, interesting though the observation is, and doesn't necessarily imply avoidance as a tactic. The behaviors and symptoms you describe are all consistent with a very bad hangover. Also, sorry to niggle, I feel that the use of the expression zonk in a formal report is a little inappropriate. However, perhaps I'm just being old-fashioned. All the best, Eudora. From the desk of Dr. Hatchdor, memo to Dr. Bassett. Dr. Bassett, naturally I accept your rebuke concerning my report, and I note your assertion that I have a tendency to overdiagnose. I am a professional, and I strive to serve the interests of my patients and of this facility 
the best of my ability. If that ability is deficient in your estimation, or if my efforts fall short of the standards which you profess to hold, I can only apologize and attempt to improve my performance. However, I cannot help feeling that your criticism is part of a strategy, conscious or otherwise, to remind me at every opportunity that technically you are the senior practitioner at this facility. Perhaps you are overcompensating for some insecurity you feel as a woman in a position of authority over a male colleague. Whatever the reason, I assure you I am well aware of your superior status and need no reminding. Zonk was intended as a joke. Obviously it was ill-advised. I realize that I am attempting to ingratiate myself with you and compromising my professional judgment in doing so. NB, I would prefer you to use my title and surname in any communications. Casual use of my first name in these matters strikes me as patronizing. Dr. W. Hatchdaw, B-A-R-C, Site D-D-S-B. From the desk of Dr. Bassett, memo to Dr. Hatchdaw. Oh dear, what's got into you, Wallace? Oh, sorry, Dr. Hatchdaw, you insist. Although it seems a bit silly to be using our full titles when we're just sending each other informal memos. But I seem to have offended you, and I'm sorry. However, there was no call for that crack about the high standards that I profess to hold. That's not very nice. Look, I know the whole status issue is a bit awkward, but I do my best. As for the stuff about gender, let's not even go there. The fact is, I was simply making an observation on what you wrote in your report. I'm sure you'll do excellent work with patient FJ, and I'm glad you're keeping a close eye on him. From what I saw of him during his admission, he looked as if he could be quite a handful. But you're always very good with that type of man, Wallace. <laughs> My goodness, rather you than me. Look, let's not get into a mis misunderstanding over this. If you'd like to discuss FJ and your treatment plan, I'm more than happy to talk about it. If not, let's just have a chat anyway. Why not drop in for a cup of tea later? Eudora. From the desk of Dr. Hatchdaw, memo to Dr. Bassett. Dr. Bassett, thank you for your kind offer to discuss my treatment plan for patient FJ and your generous invitation to drop in for a cup of tea. As it happens, I feel no need to discuss my patient with you at this stage, and regrettably, I find myself too busy to accept the offer of tea, which holds little appeal for me, to be frank with you. Hatchdaw. From the desk of Dr. Bassett, memo to Dr. Hatchdaw. Suit yourself. Right, here's another extract. Um, this is from, thank you. <laughs> this is from later in the book when the patient FJ, Foster James, or Jim Foster has settled down a bit, and he's having a discussion after a dramatic event in the facility. He's having a discussion with Dr. Hatchdaw, and they're just chewing the fat, and he's noticed that some of the inmates, even though they are all um, deceased literary figures, there's a couple of them he's spotted with whom he doesn't associate any substance abuse, so he's slightly puzzled. And they're talking about, he's seen somebody who he realizes is Mary Seacole. And he says to, to Hatchdaw, why is she here? I don't think she, as far as I know, had any, any substance issues. And then Hatchdaw says this, well, I'm beginning to suspect she's only here for the company. Mary wasn't accepted socially in her lifetime, and people sometimes seek treatment for complex reasons and with hidden motives, as I'm sure you're aware. I certainly was. I knew several people, for example, who attended AA and NA meetings simply in order to meet producers, agents, and publishers. <laughs> this practice was particularly widespread in Los Angeles and the more fashionable parts of London. These people had to exaggerate their modest or non-existent indulgences and claim to be in the grip of powerful and debilitating addictions. Often they got carried away, especially the actors. 
and constructed a series of lurid fictional melodramas into which their depravity had supposedly plunged them. These inventions became increasingly susceptible to being exposed as they grew wilder and more improbable. The fakers encountered other problems too. Sometimes they'd be in a restaurant enjoying the single glass of wine to which they were accustomed, when they'd be accosted by a fellow member of AA and have to pretend they'd just fallen off the wagon. This lie then required them to appear at the next meeting to deliver a tearful confession and pledge their renewed determination to fight the good fight all over again one day at a time. All this could get exhausting for them, and the stress of maintaining such elaborate deceptions frequently drove them to drink or drugs, and they became genuine victims of the addictions which, in the beginning, they had merely been feigning. Thank you. Thanks so much, Paul. Our next writer, Anne E. Cooper, is the writer-in-residence at Cressingham Gardens Estate and is an activist, photographer, and poet with 15 years' experience working on community writing projects. She is the author of Touched, a solo collection of poetry, and editor of And Then There Was Light. Anne is a member of Malika's Poetry Kitchen, which is a writer's collective Please welcome to the stage, Anne E. Cooper. Thank you, and um, that was a wonderful introduction. And it is a real honour to be here um, tonight. I mean, I've, I'm so used to being kind of sitting over there, and now I'm up here. Um, and I am going to start um, with a little bit of um, shameless self-publicity. Um, because we have an event um, on the 22nd of June and the flyer is on all your seats, so please do come to the launch of 306, Living Under the Shadow of Regeneration. Um, now, I'm going to read um, a couple of pieces from the book um, and I shall start with, with the very first piece. Um, my contribution to the book was to write um, ten, 10 pieces of 306 words because there's 306 properties on homes um, on Cressingham. And this is, the, this, is the, this is the very first. It's called um, The Bonds That Bind, Part 1. We are learning a new language. We learn it little by little. And, as with any language, it's learnt all the better for repetition. The most oft-repeated phrase is consultation, and we're learning about that very well. We drift into the rotunda, find tables arranged congenially, each hosted by a member of the Regen team and another council official. And they begin by asking, how do you feel about living here? A question that might not seem inappropriate were it not for the fact that banners float from the blocks demanding save our homes in hand-painted letters on bedsheets 
while window posters declare save Cressingham Gardens and choose option one. I ask one of the officials how long he's been in the job. Three months, he replies briskly. I ask, have you walked around the estate? Not yet, he admits a little sheepishly. And now a woman at our table, flushed, is in tears. I gently put a hand on her shoulder. The officials shift a little in their seats. One taps a pen nervously, and they continue to shuffle documents with tick boxes and graded lines. Strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree, strongly disagree. On the other side of the room, a man storms out. It feels like we're playing a game, pretending this process matters. Maps, graphs, models, and experts are wheeled out in this exercise in doublethink. And the game continues at cabinet meetings where our questions are never answered. Any pretense of listening is over with the infamous why we are rebuilding Cressingham tweet from the head of housing sent before the letters to residents, before the meeting where the decision is made. We've learned that consultation means we ask you what we want, what you want. We ignore it and go ahead regardless. This consultation is deemed unlawful by the High Court. Now we're going to skip forward a little bit um, and I'm going to read you the very last um, piece. And if you want to hear everything that's in the middle, you've either got to come to the launch, buy the book, um, but I'll just give you this. So it's um, the bonds that bind part 11. A few soft flakes of snow are falling. Not enough to settle, but around sounds soften. It may be close to freezing, but a hand-delivered Residents Association survey drops through the letterbox silently before breakfast. And just last night, despite freezing temperatures, residents met in the rotunda for the AGM of the Residents Management Cooperative, the aim to take control of the management of the estate from the council. Our struggle has taught us policy and strategy and tactics. It's a Herculean task faced with an administration that seems to care more for developers and their public image than their constituents. A dangerous game with elections in 18 months and already talk of independent councillors. Close on five years since 
the first consultation exhibition and it's not over. Far from it. I don't think Lambeth Council had reckoned on the stamina of a community not bamboozled by bureaucratic manoeuvres nor intimidated by slurs. A few nights ago, a full moon floated amongst the wisps of cloud illuminating Brockwell Park. I walk to the end of the block, take a picture, tweet it with moon over Cressingham and the slogan, our homes, our lives, our right to decide. And it's retweeted over and over and over. Such is the support for Cressingham in the wider community. Perhaps it's not Hercules, the son of Zeus, but his daughter Dyke that represents our will. The goddess of justice, the spirit of moral order and fair judgment emblazoned on these night skies as the constellation Libra. We're invited to take part in an exhibition, Journey to Justice, at Morley Gallery. Whatever happens, we've already made history. We know it, as do the thousands of our supporters. And the word, regeneration, will never imply quite the same thing again. It will invoke the spectre of protest and court cases and resistance. just like to say um, thank you to all of you and thank you um, to Zelda, you know, for her tireless work in, in making this night happen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, unfortunately, it looks like Alex Wheatle won't be able to join us this evening, um, so we're really sorry about that, but I'm sure he, he will be back to the book jam in future. Um, but I just want to draw your attention to a local happening that's currently in full swing, which is the Lambeth Readers and Writers Festival. It's been running over the last few weeks, and it's on until the 14th of June. Um, you can hear um, acclaimed writer Gary Young reading from his novel Another Day in the Death of America at Brixton Library at 7 p.m. on the 7th of June. So to find out more about the festival, um, have a chat to Tim on the stall at the back and pick up a booklet or flyer and have a chat to him about the programme. Um, we're still running a little over time, so we'll see you back here in seven to ten minutes for our third and final set. Thanks. <laughs>